This episode is brought to you by Malomo. Malomo offers Shopify brands the tools to turn shipping from a cost center into a profitable marketing channel through branded shipment emails and order tracking pages. This episode is also brought to you by Outer. Outer creates the world's most comfortable, durable, and sustainable furniture made from proprietary fabrics that are both eco-friendly and water, stain, fade, and mold-resistant. This episode is brought to you by Gorgeous. In case you don't already know, Gorgeous is the leading customer support platform built for e-commerce companies. Stay tuned to hear from Alexandra Collis, the Director of Customer Experience for Princess Polly, an online fashion powerhouse, to hear how Gorgeous enables Princess Polly to manage all of their customer service channels in one place. Stay tuned for some special offers from our amazing sponsors exclusively for Stairway to CEO listeners later in the show. Hello, everyone. It's Lee Green, and welcome back to the Stairway to CEO podcast. It's my mission to bring you real, honest, and unfiltered interviews with some of the most innovative founders and CEOs from all walks of life. We'll talk about their climb to the top, their stumbles along the way, and the steps they took to get them to where they are. So tune in to get inspired, listen to some real talk, and enjoy the show. Welcome to episode 91 of the Stairway to CEO podcast. I'm your host, Lee Green, and today I spoke with Yao Inning, the co-founder and CEO of Malomo. First off, I'd like to take a moment to sincerely thank Yao and his amazing team at Malomo for supporting the show. If you've been tuning in over the past few weeks, I'm sure you've heard our ads for Malomo. But for those who haven't heard of Malomo yet, They offer a shipment tracking platform that helps leading e-commerce brands like Caraway, Mudwater, and Magic Spoon turn boring order tracking pages. You know those pages. They're the ones that have like FedEx, UPS, USPS. It's like really boring. You click the link to track your order, and it takes you to this page that's not interesting. Well, Malomo turns that into a beautiful, branded customer experience and profitable marketing channel for your brand. In this episode, Yao shares with us his entrepreneurial journey from growing up in Minnesota with a snail farm in his house, to starting his first company in college as a soccer consultant, to working as a Domino's delivery driver, to working in investment banking, to launching a reading game app for kids, to running a custom software development business, which led him to create Malomo. He talks about the art of fundraising, why he decided to shut down his first tech company after just three years, and why speed always wins. And if you like what you're hearing on the Stairway to CEO podcast, we launch a new episode every week. So don't forget to click subscribe and leave us an awesome review. We hope you enjoy this episode. Yeah, I'm so excited to have you on the show. Thank you yes. so much for joining us today. Thanks a ton for having me. Very excited to to talk more about all things e-com and business. Entrepreneurship, everything. Yes. I know. I'm excited to hear your story in building Malomo. But before we kind of get to that, let's start way in the beginning. Let's hear about your childhood. Where are you from originally? What was it like growing up? Yeah, so I was born in New York, but grew up mostly in Rochester, Minnesota. So Rochester, it is known for the Mayo Clinic. Um, so huge, huge kind of like diverse 
weirdly in the middle of Minnesota, like a melting pot of, of cultures that would come there, like people that would work at the Mayo Clinic or people that would go and get treatment there. Um, and so my parents, they're both, uh, they're both originally from Ghana on the West coast of Africa and moved to the, the U.S. in the 70s, bounced around the East Coast. And then uh, they worked at IBM for a while. And then, like, I don't know why, but Rochester also had kind of a, a big IBM presence. And so they got transferred there and, uh, and then eventually uh, moved to the Mayo Clinic. So did they both work in tech? Like they both worked at IBM? Uh, yeah, so they both did. Yeah. So my dad, he was, a, um, he was actually a software programmer. And so he did that at IBM and then he got recruited to go work at the Mayo Clinic and was writing just kind of cool um, programs for doctors. Wow. Um, and he's and your my... CTO. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> got to keep him the family. <laughs> uh, and then my mom, similar, similar story. She was, she was like in systems administration, so like monitoring um, like systems at, at both places. Yeah. How did they meet? Yeah, so you know what's funny? I actually don't know how they met. What? They were Wait a minute. Like... You don't know how your parents met? I feel like that's like a must for every child. I, it is. Uh, and it's kind of embarrassing to admit. I uh, <laughs> I actually, my sister would probably know. I don't think I ever asked them. They lived in different like villages growing up in Ghana. Uh-huh. And so like, I really, I honestly do not know how they met. Um <laughs> Well, now you'll have to ask and find yeah, out and report yeah. back. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I, you know, had a, um, grew up in, you know, kind of lower middle class. Uh, my parents in Ghana, they were like, they grew up, I, I visited, you know, a half dozen times in like kind of incredible dirt poor, like yeah, dirt, dirt poor environments. And they luckily saved up enough money to get and, and got a visa and came over to the States Wow! and, and kind of just stayed and worked by the skin of their teeth. And like, they gave my, myself and my sister, you know, we never, we never really, I don't think we ever realized like how, uh, like how lower middle-class we were. <laughs> like they always kind of like, you know, gave us everything that we kind of needed. Um, yeah. Obviously we wanted for a lot of things that we, we couldn't necessarily have, but they did a lot for us and give us a really great life. So yeah, I grew up in, grew up in Minnesota. But isn't that incredible? I mean, how did that, and that takes so much, like, I mean, had they ever even been to the U.S. before they moved here? No, no right? No, yeah, no. Because you're like, yeah. sc- like scrounging and saving money for this big, big life change and like dramatic shift away from family yes. to a place completely new and far away that you've yes. never been to. Yep. That takes yep. a lot of guts. No yeah. wonder you're an entrepreneur. You got some, uh, <laughs> <laughs> <Kahunas>. <laughs> yeah, the parents, yeah, they definitely, there's, there's just like an adventure spirit in them, in them. And, and, uh, and like, yeah, I, I am always like, I'm, I'm legitimately amazed at what they were able to overcome to give myself and my sister just a much better life. But, uh, but yeah, they're, they are, um, they're incredible people for sure. So interviews over that's inspiring enough. We're ready to go. No, <laughs> no so you have a sibling. Yes. So, um, is she younger, older or older? Oh, older okay. Yes. Three mm-hmm. years older. All right. Same difference as me and my sibling. I'm the older one now. So is it just the two of you? 
No, so we do. I have a half brother too. So he's okay. he's the oldest of us all. Got yes. it. Nice. Yeah. And so, what did you want to be when you grew up? When you were a kid, were you like, yeah. I'm going to work at IBM? <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's a no for me. Uh, I. It, uh, so this is kind of a, kind of an interesting story. I always wanted to be an entrepreneur. I knew from day one. But how did you know? Like, where did that come from? I really don't know. I've asked myself that a lot. My parents, they always like they they were constantly had side hustles, and so like I remember, I remember they. <laughs> this is also embarrassing to admit, but they had a like a snail farm in our basement. What? Like not a, like a what huge is farm. A snail like, farm. <laughs> what do you mean? Like in the house? Yeah, like in the house. They had snails. Uh, How many snails would, are we talking about here? Uh, there's probably like a hundred snails at any given time. Um, and, uh, and like they would use it for the, for cooking, like a pretty common thing in like international. So you ate a lot of snails growing up. I, I did not. <laughs> Liar. You're just saying that to save face on the show. I know it. Just kidding. <laughs> oh my gosh. So uh, yeah, it was, it was like looking like when it's happening, you're like, okay, this is my parents are just doing these things and you don't really think twice about it. And then you're like, there's back, snails like, That's in really the weird. Yeah. No like deal. what is <laughs> happening? How do you monetize off of snails? Did they sell them to restaurants? Like they'd, they'd sell them. It wasn't like, yeah, it wasn't like anything like super formal. They'd sell them to just like friends who would cook and, and do all sorts of things. So like internet, like local international stores. It was really big. Like again, like Rochester being this melting pot, like Asian countries, like African countries, right? And people from all over the world. And so um, there was oddly a market. Yeah. <laughs> were there crickets involved as well? No, there, there were no crickets. Yeah. No <laughs> like, crickets. What other, what other <laughs> animals? Chocolate covered. Yeah. Right. Um, but uh, so yeah, they always had side hustles. Like my, my dad was always into like something. He, he had his own like software consulting business for a while. My parents, they would take us, they would always take us to do like creative things. So like my mom was really into woodworking. So she'd take me and, and my sister to like woodworking classes with her. They would put us in like most, uh, I think most immigrant kids, uh, had this where their parents always expected that they were going to be a doctor, a lawyer, or an engineer, right? Like <laughs> real professions, if you will, like no, no fuzzy, like psychology or. Right. Like arts. Yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> like go make money. <laughs> <laughs> we we brought uh, you here for a reason. Kid. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I did not work my way to this point for you right. to go uh, have fun. Yeah. Half-ass or something. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but our parents were just like, they were so creative. So they'd always just stick us in things. And like, I, my, my sister, like she was really like really brilliant artist. And so like my mom would put her into like Photoshop courses when she was like in middle school. And so they were always just, I feel like they were just like planting these seeds of creativity and just their natural, I think their natural, like the side hustle, seeing those, like the passion they had for that stuff and like their adventurous drive just, I think, set that tone for, for, for us to just like go out and do something, create something with your, with your talents. Yeah. 
the snail farm just kills me. I'm wondering, like, did you have any names for the snails? And then they disappeared. And you're like, mom, dad, where'd Freddie go? You can't name them because you know the outcome, right? Like, (laughs) did you know the outcome though? Or were you too young? Like, I I knew. Yeah. Yeah. You just, (laughs) it's so traumatizing. I don't even want to think about it. (laughs) (laughs) Hilarious. So you knew at some point that you wanted to be an entrepreneur. Were you, what entrepreneurial type of things did you do as a kid? Did you have like the lemonade stand? Oh yeah. Yeah. We'd do the lemonade stand. We'd go out and sell like candy bars. Yeah. We tried to do everything. I remember in college, like my first, um, my freshman year summer, you're always looking for like your first job. It's really hard to get like internship places. And so I was big into soccer growing up as well. And, and so like the first official company that I started was just a uh, soccer clinic for kids. Um, so that's how I paid my way through my, my freshman year. You were a freshman in college that started a, a soccer clinic for kids. What does that mean? Yes. Yeah. So like I had like close connections. I had like a really great soccer career. So like lots of parents in the, in the, like the Rochester community, like knew of me. And so they're like, Oh, my kids, like, I really want them to to like advance. And so I would just, I I basically kids that were like, you know, nine, 10 years old, I would just run like a weekend clinic for them around like, here's how you kick. Here's how you extra coaching. You were like consulting on soccer. (laughs) Exactly. That's hilarious. (laughs) Yep. Exactly. What position of soccer did you play? I played soccer when I was a kid. Oh, did you really? Yeah. Yeah. I I played all over. So I played, uh, I played striker, when I was growing up and then I moved in college, I moved to uh, defense. That was an outside defense back. Yeah. I like yeah. the front line too. Striker, yeah. wing, yeah. Yes. right wing. Cause I'm right footed, you know, yep. yeah. <laughs> but yep. I got to high school and like all the girls were a little bigger than me. And I was like, I'm probably going to break my leg if I continue. Like I'm yeah. a little too small, you know, little yeah. too skinny, got a little, I didn't do the winter soccer. So I couldn't really keep up. Everybody kept getting better and better. And I was like, I'm getting yes. a little worse and worse here, you know, <laughs> on the summer league is not helping out <laughs> yeah it's the hardest right like and that like that's that's like soccer's weirdly like physical too you don't like i don't think people who don't play realize how physical it is but yeah, yeah. you're right like, right yeah. like you're dribble you're just whatever it's called you know dribbling down the uh-huh. um field and someone tries to take the ball and boom against your leg you could break yeah. literally like your leg yep yep it <laughs> is like, not it's no joke fear of mine right i hope yes. you didn't break any bones with soccer i, I luckily i, I never did <laughs> good <laughs> maybe it's more rare it probably was a fear in my head you know <laughs> and anyways so you started your first company this like soccer consulting which is awesome did that kind of pay your way through college or well so no it it, it paid for my first car which is nice that's nice yeah <laughs> um but uh but yeah i worked all through college i, I had a job as a i worked for the im um, was like a ref for intramural sport, sports. And then I was a, was a Domino's pizza delivery driver. Nice. Uh, it was scary. Oh, really? Why? <laughs> job. Like I, like the, the, uh, so the school that I went to, it was in, it was in kind of a rural, uh, town in Indiana and like, it just had to go to some pretty rough places to deliver pizza. Yeah. Right. A little sketchy, (laughs) sketchy places. Yeah. Just to bring a pizza. Yeah. 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 Yep. So, but it was fun. It was like, it was good to, 
Well, I got to eat a lot of pizza, but uh, it, like my, my parents always, they were always like, you gotta, you have to earn your way into doing things. Like we're not going to hand everything to you. So like, I always had a job throughout, throughout college doing something. Yeah. Yeah. So what happened after that? You worked at Domino's, you graduated college. Yes. Yeah. And then so what? I, um, so I studied civil engineering in school. Um, I loved, I loved the intersection of like math and art. And I felt like civil engineering was like cool combination. You get to like design these beautiful buildings, bridges, roads, and then do all like the hard math to figure out how like you actually get the bill. But I, like I knew I wanted to launch my own company and it was going to take, you know, a decade or more to get the experience that you'd need to launch your own civil engineering firm. Pretty impatient. So I looked for opportunities to get, to get off that path. So my dad, like we like I mentioned earlier, he was a he was a programmer um, and he would come home from work every day just exhausted. I'm like, I don't want to like he just looks tired and annoyed and like I don't. I don't think that type of profession would be for me sitting behind a computer all day being stressed and lo and behold, it's just like every parent comes home from work. <laughs> right? It doesn't matter what they're doing. It doesn't matter what you do. If you're a parent, <laughs> yeah. forget it. Yeah. You're just stressed. Yeah. So, so I was like, I'm not going to do that. So I studied civil engineering in college. Um, I, about my junior year, Facebook, like, um, entered our campus. This is like 2002, 2003 timeframe. It's like, oh, this is interesting. Like, I wonder how like this company is making any money to just provide this website. And like, it opened up my eyes to like, oh, there's this whole world of software where it's very creative and, and it's, it's utility that you can, you can kind of launch. And it doesn't take a ton of like, um, I wouldn't say know-how, but like resources. It's just like somebody who puts with an idea can like build something and publish it to the internet and it can reach anybody was just like, Oh my gosh, this is pretty fascinating. So I like made, made a decision at that point around my junior year. that was like, okay, I, I, I've been, I've been like suppressing this desire to like go into technology because of my parents wrongly, not really understanding it. And so I looked my senior year for just ways that I could get off that career path. And I got, luckily, I, I uh, discovered this program called the Or Fellowship. It's like, it's a, it's a two-year fellowship program, takes recent college grads and places them at high growth tech companies, gives you like a front row seat to how those companies are run and managed. And then they bring in, it was pretty incredible. They bring in monthly business leaders to kind of talk about their entrepreneurial journey. And so it really felt like a mini MBA but you were working for one of these companies at the same time. So I got, I luckily got into that program. I don't know why they placed me at an investment bank. Wait a minute. That's not like a tech company. I mean, (laughs) what the hell? (laughs) Not a tech company. Yeah. Like it was, it was, it was kind of odd. Like, I think I was the only one in like my class of 10 that was like not at a tech company. Weird. (laughs) I feel like I want to refund. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. How do I change career paths to get into this? And And now I'm being pushed out of tech again. (laughs) Um, But it was like, like um, the, the blessings in disguise. Like I got to learn all about 
venture capital, private equity, how you raise early stage funding for companies, how you build growth strategies. And luckily, I think this was the reason why the, the bank was part of the program. They worked with a lot of tech companies, helped them raise venture capital or debt or finance. So I got to like create the business plans and the financial forecasts and like talk through the growth strategies um, and did that for two and a half years. And it was like a really great jumping off point to go from engineering into like, hey, this is how you capitalize and finance and grow an early stage high growth company. Yeah, that's excellent insight. Yeah. Very cool. Yes. Yeah. So were you like, oh, now I see the light bulbs going off. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It is. It was like, it was eye opening. I, I was drinking from a fire hose, just, you know, the first um, the first six months was just like learning terminology and like trying to understand how how these companies are being evaluated. Like what what do high growth investors who like are making very few bets on companies that they expect to grow really fast in markets and dominate those markets? Like what are the things that they care about the most and how do you communicate those in a succinct and compelling way was just like. Uh, it, it's one of those opportunities that you just, in, in the moment, you're like, oh, why? I don't understand how I ended up here, but like such a good learning experience to kind of get that. Yeah. I always find it fascinating how certain things just happen and definitely not in the way that you were, would might plan. Right. But it always, there's always some, it leads somewhere. And it nev- I like hate that. I don't know where it's going to lead. Cause I always want to know, of course, to predict like the future, but yeah, obviously you can't do that, but it ends up working out and you're like, oh, you know, in retrospect, you're like, that is freaking awesome. That happened, Yeah, right, you know? right. Yeah. <laughs> it happens so often too. You're just like, you think you need or want something and the world gives you something else and you're upset about it, but you then realize like, oh yeah, this was exactly what I needed. I feel like that happens to me a lot. Um, <laughs> so what happened after that? You were there for how long? I was there for two and a half years and, um, and again, like it was, it was really like my, my goal, I'm trying to start a company. So, you know, I have no idea going from civil engineering, like into the business world, into the tech world, I have no idea how it works. And so that was a great experience. I stayed on for six months after my two-year fellowship with that company. And then I left and took my first shot at launching a tech company. It was an online reading game for kids. Um, one of the most fun businesses I've, I've uh, worked on. Our thesis was uh, we actually started it at a startup weekend. I don't know if those still exist or not. Like um, a hackathon? Yeah. 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 I went like, to one of those. I mean, I can't yeah. even like code. For, I can't code yeah, at all, but I I've been either. to one. It's like an overnight 24 hour, 48 hour, like nonstop coding contest yes. thing. It's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. It's intense. It is intense. It's really intense. Yeah. Um, and you, you get to meet a ton of really interesting people and you're forced to like just create. So I went to that and I, I uh, like the idea wasn't mine. I got paired with another person who had the idea. And, and originally it was, it was uh, the iPhone had just started accepting like third party developers. And uh, his idea was like, hey, it'd be awesome if you could just turn children's books into iPhone apps. Once they're like on the phone, they're super interactive. You can kind of like teach kids how to read in a really fun way. And so our, like, we just created three books, like illustrated, animated, and created the iPhone apps in that weekend. I think we won the weekend. Like we were voted like 
the, the best idea for the weekend. And so we, we kept on running with it. And what we learned was that, you know, parents at the time, they were like, I'm not going to give my child a, a device. Yeah. They're like trying a, to keep it out of their hands and not put <laughs> it in. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like there's no way I'm going to let them, especially because it's, it's, it's super expensive too. I'm not going to, I don't want to let my kid ruin this thing. Put it in their mouth, you know, <laughs> drop it on the floor. It's yeah. Like- yep. I only know these things because I have a nine-month-old now. Otherwise, I wouldn't know these specific things that happen all the time. You have kids, I think, right? How old are your kids? Uh, My first is three and the second one is one. All right. Nice. Yeah. So you know all about devices. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Everything's going in the mouth. They're always asking for for them. They they literally say, can I have my iPad? It's like, it's not yours. <laughs> You're like, hold up. <laughs> Don't say that out loud to other people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. So what happened with this reading game for kids? Where'd it go? We're like, okay, so parents are not ready to like use this as a learning device. So we pivoted and we built kind of this web-based game. And the the idea was that if we could, we could make reading fun and interactive, it was like, it was like, we're going to build this, uh, this social network for kids around reading. They would build their digital bookshelves. They would um, get to play these games that leverage content from the books that they read when they answer correctly, they build up these points and they could use the points to like unlock different digital prizes within the game or use them to actually buy more books. And so the problem that we were, we ended up solving was parents, whenever we'd ask them, you know, what's the hardest thing about like getting your kid to read? It was like, Hey, I don't know what they should be reading. I don't know what they're interested in and like what books are appropriate for their age or their interests. And so that like whole dynamic of, the, the virtual bookshelves at scale helped us build this powerful recommendation engine. And then we, the plan was to monetize through, we would send those book recommendation, like Amazon links to parents to buy books for their kids to read. So our plan is to get distribution through schools. It was a free product. And uh, this is my first like punch in the face of building a company. Distribution is everything. And, and uh, and while we thought, you know, a free platform would be easy to get adoption through schools, what we didn't realize is that there, there are tons of rigorous standards around how technology gets brought into the classroom, right? You've got you've to prove that there's learning efficacy with any new tool. And we were taking the approach, not that, that like we didn't want to be a, like an accredited learning tool, but that we wanted to be a resource for teachers to just inspire and motivate kids to read. And so like, it was, it was really hard to get distribution through public schools. Like we had to go one-to-one to teachers and they had to say, I'm going to just adopt this new technology in my classroom rather than going through the school district and that long buying process. And, and, uh, and just didn't, we didn't figure out a distribution model to scale it fast enough. We raised some money and then ended up just shutting the business down because we couldn't find that traction. And how was that? I mean, that's like your first shot kind of taking money probably from strangers and building your first tech company. And now you're shutting it down. I mean, were you like, oh, shit, am I just not like cut out for entrepreneurship or like what was your thought process? That's a really hard thing to go through. Right. It's like it's like a loss. So how did you feel going through that and how do you kind of recover? Yeah, it was terrible. Like, cause so much of your identity was like is baked into the companies that you start in like gotten to this prestigious or fellowship program 
lots of people in the tech community kind of were rooting for us, right? We, we got press mentions and major publications. We ended up, we won uh, Houghton Mifflin Harcourt, huge publisher, um, like Curious George, their publisher of Curious George and other like children's books. They did a global competition for tech startups and, and we entered and we won like hundreds of applicants. We won, got a huge grant, monetary grant from Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. Like we, we had like really great traction in the, in the community. And it was like, it was so difficult to separate like the company's demise from, from your personal demise and like not feeling like, like you are personally a failure. Yeah, it was, it was very, very difficult. Um, we, and I raised money from my parents, right? Like who, who didn't have a ton to spare, but you, like you, you take that ownership and you really, I think I looked at it as, you know, I, I learned a lot. I knew this was not going to be easy and I have to figure out a way to separate what the company's successes and failures are from what my personal successes and failures are. We shut it down and I, I immediately looked to work on the next thing. It was like, waste no time. Like, don't sit in the sorrow. Like, just get right back uh, into starting something new. How did you know what the next thing would be? No idea. Really? Well, then what do you mean starting the next thing if you don't know what yeah. it is? <laughs> so so uh, we talk about like the universe, like creating opportunities for you that you didn't realize. I met... During the process, like towards the very end, I met my co-founder that I work with now. Uh, and so randomly, we, we met over coffee, kind of hit it off. I, my previous co-founder had, had left the business. So I was actually running the business on my own for a period of time towards the end. And so um, I met, I met uh, his name's Anthony grab coffee, just hit it off. And we were spitballing just ideas. He, he had a, he had a full-time job as a, as a uh, software engineer for, for a consulting company, large scale consulting company, and was getting pretty burnt out at his job. And so we're like, okay, well, you know, I, I just, I just kind of shut this business down. I'm looking for something, don't know what, what to do. He, he was, he basically said, well, let's, what if we just like found some consulting projects and, and we'll just kick around some ideas while we buy some time. And so we landed a, a, a contract with Rolls-Royce. Oh my God, it's la- so fancy. Know, like- <laughs> <laughs> it's our first deal. No yeah, big deal here. Yeah. And yeah, it was, I, I don't know how it happened. Like looking back, I, I <laughs> But you have that. to tell the story of how the hell did you land your first contract with Rolls-Royce? I mean, what the <laughs> oh, I will, I, Yeah, I'm happy, to, I'm happy to tell that story. I mean, because seriously, it's like your first customer. It's like the one you probably will mess up with the most, right? Because you're doing everything for the first time. And you're like, let's just aim for the best. You know, let's just start with the biggest company. Um, it, and, and, and I feel like all, all, all stories are like, they, they are bigger than they actually are. So like for that, like we, we got connected to another engineer who was working as a contractor for Rolls-Royce. And like was leading a lot of large projects. And so we had a lot of conversations with him and, and like, really, it wasn't necessarily like a selling company or like, it was like me just trying to sell my co-founder skills, which is kind of weird, right? Like you're like the business sales guy. Yeah. He's going to just be doing yeah. the work. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, and, uh, and so like, we, we really just kind of sold it to the, the, that person who was 
was looking for more resources to kind of help work on some internal projects. Um, oddly enough, like I don't even know what we worked on because it was, it was, uh, it required security clearance. And so my co-founder had to get security clearance and he couldn't tell me the actual projects, but, but like luck, like a lot of luck played into that. And, and, uh, and it was great because like, that's a, that's a really, that's a really logo-esque Mm-hmm. First that's a good start. I'm sure yeah. you got some good clients after that. Too. Yes. Yeah. 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 It was, it was a lot easier to just be like, Hey, our client is Rolls Royce. You should work with us. We know what we're doing. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and lo and behold, like by accident, we started, we built a pretty successful consulting business. So like we got another project. Um, my co-founder knew another uh, software engineer that he'd worked with that he loved. And so we brought on him and then like, we slowly started to just like add more people and add more projects and, um, and ran that business over seven years, built about a hundred different web and mobile software products and, uh, some pretty cool projects that were, that were used by Apple, Facebook, Time Warner, Target, um, pretty, pretty incredible, but also a lot of hardships. Yeah. What were some of the biggest challenges? So our, our, our second client, this was a, this was a uh, good lesson for us. Our second client. We Mercedes doing... Benz. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> I actually, I like, I, I look back, I was like, we should, we should have gotten paid in like cars. Like it right? nice to just like, Hey, I know. like, yeah, like we'll month's... give you a discount. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so consult consulting is a, it's a, it's a really hard business to be in. It's equal parts like delivering good work, but like in software, like people, I think they, they think they're buying a product, but they're, they're really buying a service. Like they're buying a team of people to deliver something in all software, especially in consulting is like custom. So like when you buy, when you buy some, something like, Hey, I, I need this app built people think that like, it's like buying a house, right? Where it's like, I'm just going to tell you all the specs and then you're going to be able to accurately estimate how long it's going to take to build it. Software is very creative and like you can take a problem and and have a hundred different ways to solve it. And so most of our clients would kind of like just have that mentality and we had to try to train them. That's not the way that this works, but like I had never, I'd never like sold consulting and so did a lot of things early on to like set us up for failure. And so we got into kind of a precarious situation with one of our earliest clients were like, they were, they were like, Hey, we've spent a lot of money. We still don't have X, Y, Z kind of complete. Like, can you give us deadlines around this stuff? And it's like, ah, you know, our best estimate is X, right? Uh, at a certain point, like they had stopped paying their bills and they kept on promising like that they, you know, because they consistently paid up until that point. They kept on promising. And it got to the point where we were like, I think six or eight weeks without getting paid. Uh, lo and behold, this was kind of traumatic. Like lo and behold, we, we found out that they, they had engaged another firm. Basically that other firm like promised them that they could deliver the solution in a certain period of time for certain fixed cost, And they just looked at everything that we built and rebuilt it, right? And so they basically, our clients were not paying us because they want us to continue to work. 
and give the blueprint to this other firm that was that was kind of doing the work. And so we got into a bad spot where it's like they base they basically never paid, and we had we had basically cash flow issues. And my co-founder and I ended up not taking salary for I think it was like four months, four or five months to make sure that we could pay everybody on the team, find new work, bring in new revenue. But it wasn't, that wasn't the, unfortunately that wasn't the last time that that happened. Right. And so we got, we eventually, about halfway through the company, we changed our model up. Um, we got way more aggressive around cash collections and cash flow management and understanding that, but it was like, it, it was really, really difficult to just, you know, you have to, if you want to keep the company alive, you got to make that sacrifice. And it's personally very difficult. Yeah. I mean, because as the founder, you're the one that takes the hit. You know, you've got to like kind of support everybody else and keep everybody, keep the trains moving. Yeah. Yeah. And you want to kind of shield the team from that stress. And so you don't really, you also don't have an outlet for it. Like you kind of have to like eat it and bottle it up and it keeps you up at night. Yeah. That's some serious stress. I mean, you can't sleep at night and then you don't know you to tell. You don't want to even tell your wife or his partner. Cause you're like, I don't want them stressing out either. I can't tell my yes. investors cause they're going to freak out. The yes. employees can't know they might leave. Like, yeah, it's really tough when you're in a jam as a founder. It's very lonely. Yes. Yeah. Very, very lonely. Yeah. Very lonely. Uh, well, that's why one of the reasons I started the show. So we yeah, talk about those things and realize that we're all, we're not alone. And there's so many stories like yours and so many amazing founders, CEOs, you know, just trying to build companies and struggling with like dealing with the pressure and the stress, you know, kind of by themselves. Um, but yeah, I hope that the show exposes a lot of those stories of struggle. So everyone knows they're not alone to reach out to each other and talk about it. You know? Yeah, yeah. I think that's one of the the like the um, the stigmas of entrepreneurship is like you you always have to project success, forward momentum, growth, right? Always, uh, never a bad day. <laughs> it's never exactly. It's never here. How are your... things going? I'm killing it. <laughs> <laughs> like, how are you really doing? I it's like I know I'm you're dying struggling. Inside. Yeah, I know. I'm dying. <laughs> totally. Help. <laughs> And now we're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. Did you know that brands like Magic Spoon, Mudwater, and Caraway get an average of 20 times the return on their investment when using Malomo? Customers track their orders four to five times before it even gets to their door. And instead of sending them to the carrier's tracking page, Malomo built a tool to help brands optimize post-purchase marketing. Use order status emails and tracking pages to spur engagement and drive additional purchases by showing new products, sales, subscription options, and other engaging content simply by being proactive in managing delivery communications. Get 30% off your first three months with Malomo today by going to gomalomo.com slash stairway to CEO. While most people living in colder climates are getting ready to bring their outdoor furniture indoors to protect it during the winter months, customers of the popular brand Outer don't have to lift a finger. After all, outdoor furniture should stay outdoors, right? Made from durable materials like all-weather wicker that withstands temperatures down to negative 220 degrees with a marine-grade frame and legs, Outer ensures your outdoor sofa will stay good as new until spring and for many years to come. So if you're preparing to bundle up this winter, go get some marshmallows to roast over the fire pit and enjoy some cozy time outdoors with Outer. 
You can get $200 off on furniture purchases by using the code STAIRWAY200 on liveouter.com. That's $200 off amazing furniture using the code STAIRWAY200 on liveouter.com. I am Alexandria Collis, Director of Customer Experience for Princess Polly. I'm focused on our strategy and innovation in the CX department here at Princess Polly. I have a quote and I always tell our CX leaders that customer experience is the heart of an organization and we pump the blood and deliver the oxygen to the vital organs in the business to help them thrive and grow stronger. The Gorgeous platform allows our agents a seamless place to just do it all. We are really there for the customer every step of the way if they want. Our customers expect quality and efficiency where they are. So the real question is, how do you get quality and efficiency across every single platform? And then once you have it, how do you maintain it? And I believe that with the Gorgeous platform, we can do that. If you're interested in learning more about Gorgeous, go to gorgeous.com and mention podcast for two months free. Thank you so much to our amazing sponsors. I hope you're able to take advantage of these exclusive deals designed just for you. Now let's get back to the show. So how the hell did you go from this business to what was the inspiration for Malomo? We we started the latter half of the, the journey of the consulting business. Um, we started working a lot with e-commerce and direct-to-consumer companies. And, and so one, uh, well, a couple of our companies were just doing some really innovative stuff around just commerce. One in particular, which was the inspiration for Malomo, they built like a dress rental company. So like rent the runway, but for children's dresses, I was kind of flabbergasted that there's a market for like high-end children's dresses, but they had built a really, really great business. And one of the, one of the things that they ran into is, is uh, rental e-commerce is very much not the same as traditional e-commerce where in traditional e-commerce, you like you've got like you're selling products and goods um, to consumers, and you're not expecting to get those products back necessarily, and and you really just need to track like inventory levels and make sure that you can kind of manage cash flow that way. For rental businesses, you actually have to know like where each individual item in your inventory is at all times, and they had this this kind of interesting problem where they've got they've got inventory they would rent it it would come back and they would have to either repair it if it was damaged or send it to the dry cleaners and clean it get it back into inventory and then like recycle that so they're trying to maximize the number of turns on each piece yep i know a lot about the rental business actually a rental platform yeah but we didn't own any inventory so we didn't do dry cleaning but yeah that's um, really the rental business is all about the number of turns you can get yeah yep and then like you have this, you have this like second, at least in like the apparel business. Um, I'd love to hear more about this, this company, by the way, that you ran uh, or a part of, but like in apparel, like you've got like, you've got seasons, right? You've got collections that you're trying to forecast, like what, what are people going to want? And then you've got a like, you've got a lifetime on a dress. So you can't, when it's, when a dress is getting towards end of life, you can't, you can't necessarily continue to like market it as, as rentable. And so the platform that we built was this inventory management platform that managed all of that. They were doing it through spreadsheets. Um, I don't know how, or, or, and it was, it was, it was crazy. I don't know how they did it, but, but like big part of that was like predicting when a dress was available and then knowing where it was tracking it 
in making sure that it got to customer on time and that they returned it on time. So it was available for the next reservation on that order. So tracking was like insanely important to the overall customer experience for this brand. Um, whenever something went wrong, it created downstream chaos. And so that was like the, the insight for us was like, oh, like just tracking, tracking products is like important. We just didn't know if that was important just for rental e-commerce or traditional e-commerce. We talked with, we had a couple of other clients and we, we talked with them and kind of like, hey, like what, um, when you think about, you know, your, your problems around post-purchase, like what are the things that come to mind? And everybody's like tracking, like being able to proactively alert our customers and give them transparency into when orders are going to arrive actually has a massive impact on how they view our brand. The problem is we, whenever an order is placed, we we pack it and fulfill it. We're actually handing off the experience to a third party, whether that be FedEx or USPS or whomever is delivering the final package. And so they actually lose control over the customer experience at a moment when the consumer is in a heightened, super heightened emotional state. And so to lose that, like it damaged their brand reputation, their ability to drive repeat purchase, their ability to um, create the best brand perception to drive long-term brand loyalty. And we were like, oh my gosh. So if we could give them back control over this part of the customer experience where they traditionally haven't had it, I wonder if we could affect the, the kind of protect the brand from bad delivery experiences, destroying their, their ability to grow. So that was the, the really, the insight that we had around the business was like, okay, a, a tracking platform kind of like masquerading as this like retention, customer experience, um, brand, brand platform, if you will. Yeah. I've seen your, um, the pages that you guys have done. I mean, I ordered actually, um, I know Caraway is one of your customers and I actually bought my husband Caraway pots and pans for Christmas. Like it's selfish gift, right? Selfish, right? My wife did the same thing. Stop. <laughs> yeah. She, she gave me the pots and pans. Yeah. They are amazing. They are so <laughs> amazing. I'm actually interviewing, um, Jordan, the CEO next week. Are I'm you? so excited oh, to talk awesome. to him. Yes. But the experience, of course, with tracking where's the package, I saw, you know, they have this beautiful branded experience that you're like, oh my God, how refreshing is this? I don't have to go to a FedEx website and look at some ugly thing. I can actually have this like amazing experience. Yeah, it's gorgeous. I have it up right here. I love oh, they're it. real. They're I know. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we're on audio now. So like people can't, don't know what we're talking about, but Yes. If you order from any company that's using Malomo, you will see the most gorgeous tracking pages. So yeah. Anyways, hilarious. Love their pots and pans, by the way. Like, I hope you like your gift because oh, I yeah, like the yeah. gift I gave my husband. Yeah. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I love them. Yeah. They're, yeah. they're great. I, I love to cook too. Like they, oh, nice. they, yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> I try not to cook. That's why I got him the pots and pans, you know? <laughs> like, here you go, sweetheart. That's smart. That's smart. <laughs> yeah. A little inspiration. No. <laughs> oh, that's so great. <laughs> um, so you got this idea. And so what yeah. were the first things that you did to kind of vet the concept and yeah. build the, the company? Yeah. So we like one of the things that we had to like really consciously do and think about was like because we ran a consulting agency, like we had all the resources, like we had the team that could build literally anything. Most entrepreneurs like they think immediately, okay, let me go build the thing and then go go sell it to the customers. We we had when we worked with with our companies, 
one of the biggest things that we saw was like they built way too much way too early and didn't release it fast enough to customers to like with the, the whole goal of learning what's going to work and what's not or getting some more insights into how to build the best solution so what we did was we actually didn't build anything we went to we went to uh our more traditional e-commerce clients um, at the consulting business and said, hey, we have this, we've heard like merchants struggle with tracking packages and they want to be able to more proactively notify their customers around delivery, reduce the support tickets that they get from people just simply asking where their order is. And uh, we didn't have this, we didn't have this concept of tracking pages at the time. So it's just like proactive notifications around delivery we said, we've got this platform built. Would you, would you kind of test this for us and see if we can't help you reduce customer support? We got two to say yes. And uh, we didn't have anything built. So what we actually did was we would log in to their Shopify store whenever a new, like daily, whenever a new order was created, we grabbed the order, the customer information, the tracking number. Then we go to like put in the tracking number into FedEx or UPS and we'd get an, a status update on the order. If like the package had moved to a state that was important, we then logged into the brand's like email marketing platform and would trigger an email one-off to those customers. And we did that for hundreds of orders. So like I literally had me, one other person and an intern, like manually every day uh, at specific times during the day, like three times during the day, like doing this process with this massive spreadsheet just to make sure that we weren't missing any customers. And so we had a second insight um, there, which was like consumers cared a lot about these proactive notifications that they were opening them in insane amount. Like they would go back to the same emails, open them and click through to, to get tracking information. And so the second aha moment that we had was like, okay, merchants, they're obviously always looking for an edge in terms of growth. Like this is a ton of traffic and a ton of engagement that we're kind of like actually ignoring. I wonder if we could turn this into a growth asset to help move the brand forward. And so that's when we, we, uh, we, we came up with that concept of the tracking pages that you kind of just shared. And, and for each merchant, it's, it's very, like the strategy is very different. Like Caraway, high, high AOV, high considered purchase, like to drive your brand loyalty. Like our strategy was, we actually should show you how to use the pots and pans, how to care for this high-end cookware, right? How to how to see others using the cookware, share recipes with you. So that whole experience during delivery gets you super excited. If something goes wrong, we've bought some goodwill with you and we'll notify you. Uh, we'll also notify our internal resources and we'll try to resolve those things quickly. But we're also trying to engage you and keep you excited and motivated for that purchase to arrive and give you utility beyond the, the package. With apparel brands, it's different, right? We're trying to expose you to more of a catalog. So we're driving cross on an upsell. We're driving you into loyalty and rewards programs. So we're using the shipping notifications and the tracking pages, these growth assets. And so that was the story that we went and told to investors, right? So it's like, we can do this on our own. We know how big it, it's actually a really big undertaking to build a platform like this because we've done it before, right, built tracking for our rental e-commerce company. And we knew we couldn't kind of bootstrap this with our own internal resources. So we went and raised the first round of, of capital on that story of like, hey, we, we know this is going to work because we've tested it in a very man behind the curtains fashion, doing a bunch of stuff manually. Yeah.
That's awesome. I think I, I saw in Crunchbase, which isn't always correct. So correct me if I'm wrong, but it says you guys have raised around $8.3 million. Talk to us about the challenges in raising and fundraising. Yeah. Uh, oh, man. How much time do we have? <laughs> <laughs> I know. And we have five more minutes. <laughs> yeah. Fundraising. Um, fundraising is like, it's interesting because you have to, you have to kind of separate like the, the, business from the fundraise like fundraising is very much selling vision and storytelling and uh focusing on like um how your market evolves over time or changes because of um the product or the service that you built or introduced we uh we made so many mistakes um in fundraising our first fundraise took about nine months to get done. There's like small mistakes and bigger mistakes. Small mistakes were things like when we pitched our first investor, we went and asking for, we need, I think it was like $700,000 to build this pre-product, like pitch deck and like four people on the team still had day jobs. Investors like look at that and say, well, you know, no, go show me like traction, right? Like go, go prove to me that this vision that you have actually exists by customers using the product. And like, you should actually probably raise a little bit less to go like get to that first traction point. We ended up changing our number, right? It's like, okay, instead of going and pitching to funds, maybe we could go raise a smaller amount from angel investors, and we actually, uh, we got one of the partners at one of the first funds that we pitched was so intrigued by the idea, but was like, you guys are still pretty early. I'd love to kind of be a personal angel investor. Um, That's kind of rare. It is very rare. Yeah. <laughs> Normally there's like a conflict of interest, I think, yeah. and stuff like that, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, and we, like, when we approached him for the first time, it wasn't like a full partnership pitch. It was like, okay, hey, we've got this concept. And, and he was like, oh, this is interesting. Like, I, I think, I think you don't need 700,000. Like, I think maybe you need like, like, you know, 25K. <laughs> yeah. You need a lot less to 50, go prove a lot more. Yeah. yeah. So let me, let me help you raise an angel round. And so we went down that path and this was the thing, like momentum and fundraises is everything. Like you have to like, just slowly show proof points that the fundraise is going to result in like in a, a, a transaction happening and you as an investor are going to miss out if you don't participate, right? If you don't get in at this point, you're going to miss out on the opportunity. And so like, that's what I mean by separating like the business and the metrics from the fundraise itself and the art of fundraising. So the it was art like, oh. of fundraising. I like that. That is so true. <laughs> it is an art form. Yes. It's like art and science kind of in math. Yeah. You know? yeah. yeah. It's storytelling. It's um, negotiating. It's managing like, the power dynamics. Um, it's trying to get, trying to get like people to realize that like if they don't get in, they're gonna miss out. Like that FOMO is huge, and and it, it's like a series of events. Like you have to show momentum. So like uh, uh, in in a fundraise, the, the first proof point is like somebody says yes, right? You got you got to get somebody to say yes, and like that that investor is the first person to say, I get the vision. I'm willing to bet on you and this story. And the proof points that we're going to show with this amount of capital will get us to the next stage. Here's the weird thing that ended up happening. So we got 
he helped us bring in a couple of other angel investors. And then we pitched a fund. We're like, hey, we've got, we're raising $300,000. Half of it's committed from these angel investors. This fund knew the angel investors. All, they were all very impressive SaaS founders themselves. The fund was like, and we didn't want to pitch the fund. We're like, we're raising an angel round. We'll come pitch you four guys because maybe you four will also be angel investors. They all said, this is really compelling. We'll write, we'll write a check that will finish out your round. So then, like talk about momentum, went to the first angel investor that committed and said, oh, well, if the fund, this fund is going to participate, I have a fiduciary responsibility to likely bring this back to my partnership to see if the if our fund would like to participate. Herding sheep. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> so it ended up, we went from, I'm, I'm going to raise 750,000, just people being like, no, that's not going to happen uh-huh. to we're going to raise 250,000 to 300 to 400,000 to then like both funds saying we want to be in. So the round ended up closing at 600,000 for our first round of funding. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, also it's kind of a lesson of like don't listen to every investor. Like, you know, they always, you know, you just never know. There's like, always an exception to every rule. Yes. Yeah. 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 And like we actually had to at that point, um, we had to, and this is the hardest. It's it's like you like are clawing for people to say yes. And then a bunch of people say yes. And then too many people say yes. You have to like turn people away, which is also kind of like, it's, it's, it sounds like a super arrogant and dumb thing to be like, I'm not going to take money, but like, you're also trying to manage the dilution in your business, not raising too much to hit the right milestones to show you're, you're being cash efficient. And, uh, and so like the second fundraise was, I want to say it was not easier. It was easier because I knew a lot of the earlier mistakes, but like we, so we raised four rounds of funding and the last two were way easier than the first two because of all the mistakes we got to make. Oh, are there bigger mistakes that you can share? Yeah. Um, So the, the second mistake, like momentum, we raised our second round of funding and ended up, it ended up being a two point. um, Well, I'm sorry. It was a half a million dollar round. And then a, a 2.1, 2.2 million dollar round. The half a million dollar round, uh, we had um, we had about a million dollars committed, and COVID happened, and half the money disappeared. Every investor started pulling out of the market, and we were forced to fundraise without momentum. So, like we, um, the biggest the biggest recommendation that people often make when you're fundraising is is fundraise in. Um, parallel. Like you have to have multiple investors at the same stage of your fundraise so that you minimize the amount of information sharing between funds, right? You don't want people to know that others have passed on on the opportunity because you're trying to create FOMO, you're trying to drive excitement. And it has to be, it has to happen in a very finite amount of time because the longer the fundraise drags on, the more and more you look like an uninvestable company. And so what we, 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 what we did was we accidentally fundraised in parallel. Like we went to one investor, we tried to drive them to close, yes or no. Then we went to the next investor when we got a no, fundraised. And like that information, like you don't realize it as an entrepreneur, but it, it actually spreads um, fairly quickly. They talk. Yeah, they talk. Yeah, they talk. <laughs> yep. Yep. 
<laughs> you leave the meeting. It's already been blasted to like yeah. 25 investors. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> hey, what do you think of this? You exactly, know? right? Because they're like, I don't know. What do you think? Are you going to go in? <laughs> I don't know. You? Like they can't decide. So they all like get buy-in from the other sheep to like make the decision. <laughs> it is very much, it is very much herd mentality. Like one of our investors, oh, I remember one of one investor, I didn't, I didn't realize this until later. He, he actually said, yeah, we talked in like December and then, and I didn't hear from him. And then we got our, our, uh, our $2 million round was kind of like coming together and we pitched, he heard about it from another uh, investor that committed, who was very like respected by this, by this other investor. And, and he actually tried to force his way. He was like, Oh, I have to get, I have to get into this round. He told me afterwards that he, no, sorry, the investor, this other investor who told him to come into the round told me afterwards that like, oh, this guy told me he passed in the round. Oh, but because he invested, the guy was like, oh, wait, well, if you did, then maybe I don't want to pass Exactly. Anymore. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, this, yeah. it's very much like, like perception is reality, right? Like it, it, it it's odd because it, it feels like we had a good business, right? We ended up getting $8 million in funding. And like, it's hard because multiple investors, if they pass and that information spreads, like the fundraise itself is looked at as like, oh, I, sh- I should pass on this. Not necessarily because the business is bad, but because other smart people are passing on this and they might know something that I don't, or I don't understand. That's exactly what it is. I feel like investors are like, oh, if I don't know enough about something, I'm just going to kind of either give it to, send it to somebody who I think has a lot of experience in this space to advise me on what I should do, or if they would go in, then I'll go in. And they kind of, you know, instead of kind of doing the, the work, maybe in the research and due diligence themselves and trying to learn about a new space, they kind of rely on other people that have made several investments in that space. Like, oh, well, you're the expert. So I'm just going to do what you do. (laughs) Oh, yeah. That is so, so true. That's so, and I kind of feel like that's why fundraisers move incredibly quick once the round starts coming together because everybody realizes, oh, I'm going to miss. I need to, somebody else knows something. They've already done the due diligence. They know what's happening here. I need to get in rather than like wait. Yeah. So would you say that a good piece of advice for fundraising um, for founders out there listening would be to try to secure an angel investor or a fund or just get the experts in your space to invest? That last part, experts in your space to invest is like, yeah, um, if I could give one, um, we wasted a lot of time on people that didn't understand e-com. Um, like, Which it's, is bizarre that exists. <laughs> yeah, it is. I mean, in yeah. 2019... 2018, 2019, when we were were raising, like it it actually was, people thought Shopify was this, like, it's only for mom and pop shops. Like they're not big businesses being built on Shopify. And then like overnight, Shopify went from like a $4 billion valuation to a hundred billion. And then every, every investor had a thesis in e-commerce. Like I remember talking to investors and being like, I know you had no idea how e-commerce worked. And then I'm getting, (laughs) I'm getting emails from you about your long memo thesis about e-com and the insights around infrastructure, technology, and e-commerce. And, and, uh, and it's, it's just interesting how the, that dynamic switches, but like the people who, who understood made bets early because they knew what was happening. Yeah. So how big is the team now? Yeah, we are, we are 25 people at Maloma. Wow. That's awesome. Yes. What's something that you've learned the hard way? Like what's, um, you know, a time that you learned a hard lesson? 
I think one of the, the biggest lessons over time has been, well, let me give you two. Um, one is cultural debt. And so one of the things as a founder that, that you don't realize is that like cultural norms are being set in the company, whether like you realize it or not. And if you're not intentional, intentional about driving those things, like they start to, they start to actually become debt that weighs down the business. And so like one thing that we ran into is like, I, I'm very, I'm very thoughtful. Like I, I'd like to spend a lot of time thinking about things and like trying to get to a right solution. I kind of think it's like the civil engineering me, like we were taught that like, if you make a mistake, a building can collapse. So like, right. Like be, be very thoughtful and methodic about like how you're doing or designing things, which is like the exact opposite of what like you need in entrepreneurship. I should say tech entrepreneurship, depending on the industry, but especially in e-com it's like speed wins. Yeah. It's like this move fast and break things. Oh, that you even have a sign speed wins in your office. <laughs> speed wins. Yeah, it's like a reminder to myself. Like, yeah. um, and so that was one of the things early on, like, I, and so I brought in, I brought in one of the, of uh, the first employee at Malomo. He now runs our sales team. He is the exact opposite. He is like, I'm going to, I'm going to move fast. I'm going to like break, like break things. I'm just going to learn and adapt. I think I made a lot of mistakes in like, holding the company back with trying to be more thoughtful about our decisions, like not realizing that a lot of decisions can be reversible. And so like, we had to kind of like reset the culture where the culture kind of got built where it's like, Oh, we're actually moving too slow. Decision-making is not happening fast enough. People are not, they're not, they don't have enough information to make the, the best decisions in a very quick time frame. And so like, you have to think about like, okay, if we want the culture to change, then I have to, I have to actually be intentional about changing the culture, right? Do we need to create a, co- a core value? Um, do we need to reward employees to exhibit that core value? Do we re- how do we reinforce that over time so that the, the whole organization kind of shifts to that different mindset? So that's one, one hard learning that we still are, are trying to figure out. And then the, I'd say the second learning as an entrepreneur, like um, I think a lot of entrepreneurs, they like, like to do a lot of things like you almost have to like when you start a company there's just too much to do so you, you have to be very good at learning things really quickly um and being able to do things quickly the hard part is like you have to at a certain point you have to be irrelevant to the business and like you have to stop doing and actually start empowering right it right the leadership role changes right or actually maybe it begins right yeah 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 Yeah. it's like you go you're like builder mode and at some point especially as ceo you have to transition into empowering your team and that should start from the very beginning but i'm sure it's pretty tough with a lot of with you know very small team and everybody's just heads down and lots wearing lots of hats but it goes from execution to empowerment yeah 100 percent hundred percent. Like, and, and you talk to a lot of entrepreneurs, they're control freaks, right? they like, they crave control. If they didn't, they'd go work for somebody else, right? They have a very specific vision of how they want their company to come alive. And so it's really hard to give up that control to others who maybe don't see the vision as clearly as you do, right? You have to like, let them, let them make mistakes on your behalf and be okay with it. Right. I, like I, I run into this all the time where it's like, I see a customer interaction. Like I look in their CRM, I see a customer interaction. Like, Ooh, I would have, I wouldn't have said that. I would position things a bit differently. 
but like you can't scale that way, right? Like you cannot, if I continue to do every job, like the company will die. So you have to figure out a way to like make yourself relevant and, and like get the team to like execute in the ways that, in the ways that like bring your vision to life, the way that you thought is going to, going to happen. That's so true, right? I think every founder probably struggles with that, where they see things being done in a different way. And I think their intention, and we know I should, you know, I should really hire people that are smarter than me in things that I'm not as good at. And I should let them set them free to do their jobs, right? And I think that every founder knows that intuitively and and tries maybe to do that. But I think actually enabling that to happen is a totally different thing. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, it is. You know, founders get out of your own way. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's the best way to put it. Like we are our own worst enemy. Yes. Right. <laughs> I mean, you're like, I know this customer. I know this product. I know how to position it. I know, you know, it's in a lot of that's probably true, but different perspectives are important too. Yeah. Yeah. That is, that is very true. Yeah. One of our core values is seek out opposing viewpoints. It's like, you, you think you might have the best information and knowledge, but somebody can give you a different perspective and you can, um, you can be blown away that that perspective is actually the right perspective to have. Yeah. I'd almost say like seek out and support opposing viewpoints, you know, cause it's like, you can seek it out, but it doesn't mean you're going to buy into it. <laughs> <That's true. laughs> that is true. That's funny. So, you know, kind of before we wrap up here, I'd love to hear some final advice you have to any founders thinking of building a business. What is next for Malomo? And um, yeah, just any final challenges that you've kind of overcome to get to where you are? Yeah. So um, like, yeah, parting advice of somebody that's thinking about like going down this journey is like most founders, when they think about the vision for their companies, like they see what it's going to look like in 10 years. They have to like, build that the first go around. Like we saw this at our consulting agency all the time. It's just like, you'd be surprised like what customers are like willing to overlook (laughs) because the pain point that they might have is so acute and and, uh, important to solve for them that they'll forgive a lot. Like it's, it's actually much better to have an action oriented mindset of just like, just go start get something in front of folks and get feedback. Don't wait for it to be perfect. Um, if you wait, you'll lose, right? Speed wins, market the biggest tech companies in the markets that win, they move the fastest. So I'd, I'd say that. And then the second the second piece of advice is like find somebody to go through this gauntlet with. You said this, Lee, before, it is so lonely. The journey is so, so lonely. You can't really tell everything to your employees your spouse, (laughs) your investors, your partners, and nobody will be like in the trenches thinking about the business as much as you will as a founder, you don't turn it off. And so like you need, you need an outlet and that outlet usually ends up being best shared to another co-founder who's going through the same thing. I cannot tell you the number of times, like I've been at, at a cliff's edge and my co-founders talk me down. And then a week later it flips where he's at cliff's edge and I talk <laughs> him down. And, right. and, uh, and, and that's what keeps you going, right? It's just like somebody who can, who can kind of like help you stabilize the mental and emotional journey. What's next for Malomo? We are 
Uh, our vision is to really build a post-purchase hub, like be the central nervous system for where post-purchase happens. And so you kind of probably saw this on the Caraway tracking experience. There's, there's actually, in, um, probably didn't realize it, there's like multiple apps like driving content on that experience. Um, like our vision is to have that be the, the biggest growth asset in a merchant's arsenal where they can drive the, the, the it's an opportunity for them to drive the best relationship with their end consumer. And so we, we look at ourselves the same way that kind of Shopify looks at themselves in the purchase experience, right? They've got the platform with all these apps that create these experiences and each consumer don't realize there's probably 40 or 50 or hundred different apps powering that that storefront we think the same thing around post-purchase right there's there's you know dozens if not hundreds of apps that are delivering experiences that are personalized to you that in the moment that you see those that content you engage with it um, you don't really realize that you're you're actually creating this really deeper connection with the, with the brand um, so that's that's our vision yeah that's amazing yeah. well i thank you again for supporting the show really yes. appreciate it i'm a huge fan of you guys and you yeah, but yeah likewise. thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your story thank you so much for having me this is a ton of fun and enjoyed really enjoyed the conversation Thank you so much for listening to the Stairway to CEO podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Lee Green. And if you have any burning business questions, please feel free to reach us at www.stairwaytoceo.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to the show, tell your friends, leave us a review, and follow us on Instagram at Stairway to CEO. Until next time, guys, keep on climbing.